This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Nitin Seem, the Editor-in-Chief of ATS Scholar, and I'm really excited for a special scholarly podcast today, talking about the best of ATS Scholar in the year 2021. I am honored to be joined by ATS Scholar Senior Deputy Editor Trish Critic and Deputy Editor Christy Burkhart for today's discussion. So Trish and Christy, I, I really enjoy this podcast. We've done this two years in a row now. Uh, I think it's important because we're still a new journal coming up on two years of publishing papers. And I'd like us to be open with our readers uh, uh, with what we're doing and, and, and how we're thinking about the journal. Uh, so I hope our conversation today will, will provide some insight to our listeners about how we see the journal and how it's evolving. After all, we're, we're an ATS journal for the health professions education community, and we want that, that the community to know what we're thinking. So that's how I'd like to start. But first, I'd, I'd like you both, for the few people who don't know you, to introduce yourselves. Uh, Trish, first, please uh, update our listeners about your day jobs and, and how you've been uh, in 2021. Well, um, isn't being a senior deputy editor of ATS Scholar part of my day job? I hope it is. I do it usually during the day. But in addition to that, I'm a, a pulmonary critical care doc and a professor in medicine at the University of Washington. A lot of what I spend my time doing is being the associate chair for, you know, the associate dean, I don't even know what my title is, for uh, faculty affairs at the School of Medicine here. And so I spend a lot of my time thinking about how we help our faculty thrive. And obviously, for everybody listening, this has been a really tough year to work towards helping everybody thrive. So um, from lots of stuff around well-being, but also thinking about how do we help people keep getting promoted? How do we help people keep gaining skills? How do we help them take on new leadership roles? All those things are, are what I spend my time doing. And Honestly, supporting the work of this journal is kind of fits into that, particularly in the world of pulmonary critical care, where, you know, that's still my home academically here at UW and across the country. And so I'll, that's what I've been up to. Christy, how about you? Yeah, so I, I would like to expand about you out of UW and say that you do that for people like me as well. And so part of my growth um, within sort of academia and my focus in medical education has really been supported um, by Trish through all of those skills that she has. And so I'm thankful for that. My day job and who I am. So I am a professor of medicine at Columbia University in New York City where I spend the majority of my um, education focus is the program director for our pulmonary and critical care fellowship program. New stuff for me this year from an education focus is that I am the co-director of our med student course um, as of this year. So that's exciting and a new opportunity to sort of expand my educational reaches to that undergraduate medical education. And then sort of slightly different is that I took over also as a co-director of the Columbia Salzburg Internal Medicine um, Seminar that happens annually, where I get to sort of work on that international reach and really reaching out to learners and educate and, and educate across um, sort of that national platform. And so it's a new fun opportunity for me there as well. All right, well, let's get into talking about some actual papers. And I think what we, we we're trying to do here is talk about some papers, but also talk about the papers in the in the broad context of you know what we're thinking about for the for the journal. So 
Trish, I want to come to you first. We do publish a fair uh, number of papers related to simulation, and certainly there's one area that's really uh, gone mainstream and has been a point of emphasis uh, across culture is virtual and, and, and augmented reality. Uh, I thought there was a nice review on this topic that we published, uh, Stacey Casuto and colleagues from uh, UPenn. It was entitled Virtual, Augmented, and Alternate, Alternate Reality in Medical Education, Socially Distanced but Fully Immersed. So I was interested on your and your thoughts about this paper and, and, and these sort of review papers in general. So first of all, I'm chuckling when you said this is mainstream because one of the things I loved about this paper is it taught me what augmented reality and alternate reality were because I actually didn't know that. So um, I'm not super mainstream, um, but I thought what I liked about the paper, there's so many things, but one is that they actually explained to me the difference between virtual reality, which I think we do we'll kind of all know we have visions of people with goggles on or headsets on augmented reality, which is the kind of superimposing computer images on things and and also having the tactile part of it potentially. And then alternate reality, which I'm going to say I kind of knew, but I think the whole process of gamification, they really brought to the fore there. And then what I what I thought was really nice in the review was they talked about like each of them and, and how much upfront investment there is, what's the degree of fidelity, how customizable they are, and then what data there are to support the use of it in medical education and then where possible in pulmonary critical care sleep medicine education. And I, I found that really nice. They had a really good figure to kind of help me think about those different, uh, different modalities and how they could be employed as an educator in different spaces. Um, so I, I actually learned a lot from reading it. Uh, I learned about where I might want to put some of these things and some places where I'm probably not going to voyage. I'm not sure I'm a big VR person, but I, I could see how, how valuable the different strategies could be. I think the other thing, since you asked that I would highlight is it was a really nice narrative review. And to be frank, we'd love more narrative reviews. And I think it's a good example of how folks can talk about an education topic in a review paper that was incredibly useful to me as an educator, and I suspect uh, incredibly useful to a lot of other folks in the community. So I really enjoyed it. And as always, I learned a lot from reading it. I'll take this as an opportunity to pivot to the next topic and say, hey, Christy, the other category that we, we have had for a while and I really enjoy, and I know you like a lot is the innovations category. And um, I think we all chuckled when we first saw this uh, paper come in, but I, it was a great one and I think worthy of highlighting. And that was the paper that was entitled Training Pulmonary Critical Care Fellows in Thoracitesis Using a Head-Mounted Video Camera from F.E. Singus. And, and just the visual on the title of the article alone is enough, but tell us why you thought it was a great paper and why it was a good example of that category of innovations. Yeah, as you know, I love this innovation paper. I think it's a really creative way to perform a workplace-based assessment that's specifically about direct observation of procedural skills. And this approach could be widely applied across various pulmonary and critical care procedures. So this is a study that included just first-year pulmonary fellows with so a small number, only eight, and it incorporates both a pre-training and training component that leads up to this assessment with the head-mounted video camera, right? So that's that visual that we all sort of have in our head. Um, they start with some multiple choice 
questions assessing knowledge and confidence, and they talk about this multimodality curriculum that really includes sort of didactics, reviewing this checklist, um, watching videos, and then deliberate practice um, with simulation and using task trainers, really focusing on a, sort of obtaining those skills necessary before patient care and doing that procedures. After they've received this training, these fellows are sort of launched into the world of clinical practice, right, as many of us do. Um, and they and they go out and do their bedside thoracentesis on on patients under direct supervision of faculty, and during that time they allow for two sort of GoPro or sort of head mounted um, video cameras observing their their procedures. And the first one is before the fellows think they're ready to be independent, before they think they've sort of achieved competence in this procedure. And it's really and I think this is a great sort of technique, right? It's a reminder. There's variation in doing things in comfort with a camera on your head and how do you make sure that's not affecting that sort of assessment. So they start with basically a trial when you're not ready to be assessed, put a camera on your head and then let them actually view that video as part of their learning, as part of that debrief. And then really the focus on the assessment is this sort of second time that they're using the, the head, head mounted um, GoPro. And at that point, there's a supervising attending present throughout the procedure. And I love this, that the attending can't say a word, which I'm sure is hard for them, unless it's gonna be about patient safety, right? So they can't help, they can't adjust. And then they take a look at it. And what the study found is that the fellows did not think the camera interfered with the procedure. Patients didn't mind. It wasn't that much longer to add to it. Um, they felt that the video review provided great feedback for them, and both faculty and fellow felt it was a nice objective way to sort of measure that competency, assess competency. And so I think this is a great representation of an innovations piece because it's a novel approach to direct observation of procedural skills, right? That's historically done by checklists with a single attending who's also that sort of direct supervisory attending. Um, it can be widely applied to other procedures within pulmonary and critical care, um, and it allows that review of that videotape for the fellows to also get that sort of learning objective. It's a small number, right, so it's certainly not an original contribution, but I think it sort of inspires um, people to be more creative with this and perhaps apply it to other procedures. So for me, that's actually why I love this as a representation of it. And if I may just chime in there, I think that's like sort of a classic innovation right you know you have a small fellowship class like many of us do so you can't get a hundred people to study this thing but it's the sort of thing that just makes sense right getting a head mounted camera so you can actually watch from the perspective of the learner and 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 and, and go through this process and, and collect some data but again you're going to have a smaller end and so I, I love when we publish these papers and i think it, it, it helps all of us training uh uh you know uh, fellows across uh, the country to say you know is this something that we want to look at more closely but again it's not going to have the rigor of original contribution so i, I really appreciate you highlighting this one great well i'm going to now turn to you nathan um, I know you really value the view from the learner category. Um, and for those of you who are not familiar with this category, the ATS Scholar view from the learner commentaries are from trainees discussing their first person experiences about topics that are important to them. Um, Nathan, I know you particularly enjoyed one we published this year, Purposeful Inaction in COVID-19, a medical student's perspective from Hema Pingali and Ashwini Jashi. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. That Thank you, Christy. I think, you know, obviously we've all been immersed in COVID care and, you know, uh, modifying operations and 
being there for fellows, faculty, trainees. Uh, so I think, you know, reading this paper from, from the med students lens who had to step back from clinical rotation to curb COVID spread, but were of course incredibly frustrated feeling they came into medicine to help people. And this was a, a historic time of crisis. So how you deal with that feeling of staying at home, you know, and not being helpful enough right, when, when the world needed more healthcare providers, but the, how they found ways to still advance professionally and serve people, um, but do so virtually that rather than at the bedside. I, I thought that was really interesting. And I think, you know, being in medicine, going through training, right, it is a human experience. There's certainly nothing more humanizing about it, unfortunately, than, than the struggles during COVID. And I think what we really do want to do with scholarly, we want to hear from our learners. And so we really do hope to see more view from the learner manuscripts in 2022. And I think one of the things we've done, we've t- t- as, as you know, we use this podcast to talk about some of our reflections, you know, we, we modified our author instructions so that the learner, uh, the student resident fellow, the trainee can have a senior co-author um, to help them with the writing, because sometimes that can be challenging, especially as you're more junior, but as long as it's written from the lens of the learner. So I hope we can get the word out about that. And we'd love to see more manuscripts from, uh, from our trainees talking about their experiences. So Trish, I wanted to, to, to talk about another, and actually a, an interesting a new submission category. Uh, we've had, you know, journals do have research letters or brief reports. And we started uh, in 2021, a brief report category. And then the first one we published was, was actually, I, I thought, quite interesting. And I know three of us spent some time talking about it. Um, and uh, it was about gender representation in medical emergency training videos. So I'd love if you could uh, you can inform our listeners about, tell, us, tell them about the paper, and then you know, uh, what we think of, of manuscripts that may work for brief reports. Yeah, I'm actually gonna start with the, lot, the second thing, which is I love brief reports. They're great for <laughs> readers. They're brief, they're quick and easy to read. <laughs> they're only a thousand words or less. So you should read all the brief reports. Everyone who's listening to this, read them all. They're great for authors too. They're an opportunity to share something that's kind of early. It's it maybe a little focused examination of something or something where you don't have a lot of data, but you have made some observations that you think are worth sharing. I, I think they're kind of peaks for future further research or a chunk of the stuff that you're doing. So I think they're great opportunities for, for authors and outstanding for readers because I have a short attention span. This one's a great example of that. It's a really cool report about something that we talk about a lot, which is gender bias in academic medicine. And what the authors did, which I thought was clever and informative was look at 19 videos of resuscitation training. Half of them were ACLS training, half of them were team steps training. And they looked at 85 actors across those videos and said, who's the leader? And what gender are they? So out of that, out of the, all of the, the 85 actors, 21% of them were physicians in their, in their roles in the videos. Uh, and only 28% of those physicians leading were women. So about a quarter. Another way they, they parsed it was to say of all the women in the videos, only 10% of them were in this kind of physician leadership role, whereas a third of the men were in that. And, and then they had a really nice discussion about social identity threat and whether or not there is impact from this. And I think the answer is yes, but 
that's not what they studied. They, they're proposing this. They really just showed us what they found and they leave it to us to kind of think about this more. And that's why I think these brief reports are great for kind of perking us to, to think about more about what we might do to try to mitigate this or investigate it further. But, but you know, the things they discussed, which I, I think, again, I encourage people to read it, is like this concept of, of social identity threat is like, if you see yourself portrayed in a certain way, or you think certain things are attributes to the role that you hold in a, in a, in a culture and a climate, then you're more likely to, to perform to that expectation. And it's problematic if we don't show women in leadership roles about, you know, kind of what that, what that's implicitly telling folks, both them and the other people around them. So I, I really like the awareness that was raised by this. It didn't answer a question. It actually asked, you know, provoked a lot more questions. And, and really, I think that is perhaps the best use of something like a brief report. So I'm really excited that we added this category. And I think this is an exemplar for um, kind of how we, how people might think about using this new, new type of submission for the journal. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, um, again, to prevent propagating um, propagating the issues that, that you talked about, I think it's important to publish this sort of work, and, and a brief report is a space to do that, so I, I, I love what you said. Yeah, and I would say, and if you have a big research paper about this that you want to share with us, we'd be happy to take that, too. We were excited <laughs> about anything on this topic, because it's really important to us. Um, Gender equity, racial equity, those are those are really priorities for us as a journal. And, and I think for many of us in healthcare uh, throughout, you know, medicine, but pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine. Yeah. And you know, we published a special collection about that. We are we think it's important. And I think that's a great pitch to say, do good research about it. And we want to look at that work and hopefully publish it. Yeah. The other thing that we spent some time talking about is wanting to be a journal for lots of folks, not just a small subset of our, our community of pulmonary critical care and sleep healthcare professionals. And in that space are a bunch of people who do science. Uh, and I know that Christy, as a fellowship director, you nurture both the clinical development and the research development of, of many fellows. So you have been a champion for us thinking about how do we train folks who are learning how to be scientists, whether they're, you know, PhD scientists or their physician scientists in the training program. So I know that you were a champion of us publishing the paper that was entitled Impact of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute's Loan Repayment Program Funding on Retention of the, of the NIH Biomedical Workforce um, because it's a priority for you. So I wondered if you want to talk a little bit more about that paper. Yeah, I think this is a great paper, um, and it really highlights programs that really can influence um, trainees who are pursuing academic careers, specifically those interested in a physician scientist career. Um, it's also an incredibly well done original research paper with a robust study design, um, and, and really the analysis brings into focus that unique sort of physician scientist trainees within our programs um, and some of the unique sort of perhaps educational and resource needs that um, are attributed to that group. Um, similarly to the unique needs that we have with people pursuing different academic careers. This original research publication really looked at the impact of NIH loan repayment programs on retention of physician scientists in our research workforce. Um, they also have a smaller group of uh, PhD um, trainees within that analysis as well. 
And for those of you unfamiliar with the NIH loan repayment programs, one like listen, because it's a hugely important program and one that you should be advocating that your trainees apply for. Um, it was established by Congress in 2000, really aimed at mitigating the economic-based um, causes for decline in trainees pursuing physician scientist careers. Um, it is a renewable two-year contract. Um, the award pays, repays a portion of students' qualified sort of student loans. It's pretty competitive. It's an application process that follows a traditional NIH format. Again, for those of you unfamiliar and why you should like, your ears should perk up. So from 2000 to 2019, it was $35,000 per year. Um, for that two-year contract in 2020 went up to 50,000 per year, um, really recognizing the increase in loan burden that our trainees were seeing. And this study examined that impact, right? So of, of people who applied for and, and actually were awarded an NH loan repayment um, funding on several metrics that they sort of determined were a success of this program. They looked at sort of the continued pursuit of careers as physician scientists, the retention in that, that career path, um, and that sort of success. And they looked at sort of measurements of K and R level applications and successful awarding and then publication numbers. Um, it's a pretty robust study. So they looked only at two, two cohort years. So they looked at 2003 and 2008 cohorts. In the 2003 cohort, 212 um, applicants for the loan repayment program, of which 116 were awarded. So it was a 55% success rate. The number significantly increased in 2008 to 355 applications and really only a 43% success rate. So it really is quite competitive um, to receive one of these awards. I, what I love about this paper is that they do break it down into sort of the two different cohorts, although figures are set up exactly the same, so you can take a quick visual and really understand the impact that this program has had. So figures two and five really illustrates the, the loan repayment awardees um, were more likely to apply and receive both K and R um, NIH awards compared to those who were not awarded a loan repayment um, award. And then three years, three and six also highlight that greater number of publications. And so really sort of highlighting that based on these findings, the, low, the loan repayment program really appears to enhance retention and, accept, and success as measured by K and R awards, as well as publication. And so why I love this paper is one, I think, I, I hope it brings to the attention of people who may not be familiar with loan repayment programs that we really should be looking to help our trainees apply for it and successfully apply for it um, from that sort of mentoring standpoint. Um, it's also, like I said, a really well-designed study. The statistics are robust. It's a high quality original contribution in medical education focused on the education training of our physician scientists and scientist trainees. So I think it really opens um, a, great example or provides a great example for what we are hoping to bring to ATS Scholar. Like, what are you doing to enhance the training and the opportunities for your physician scientists in your program? Uh, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, you know, I think what's, what, thank you for summarizing that, Chrissy. I think what's really interesting, right? It, it's all very logical, right? We want people to have an opportunity to be physician scientists. You know, it's very, it's a long road being a, going to med school, resident, fellow, you know, taking on more time. Now, you know, I was an LRP recipient. I did not have anywhere near the debt that trainees have now, right? And so that's increased. But, but how do you measure the outcome? And, is that the, and you've invested this money. And, and, we've, and frankly, there hasn't been rigorous assessment of this in many things we do, but this was a great job by this group from NHLBI to actually follow this out. And again, I think you worry that you, know, you need homes for these sorts of papers. And I'm, I'm glad we are home for it.
I hope it inspires them to look at it again more recently. I know it takes time. You have to have time for people to get to the R, et cetera. But I would love to see this kind of continuing to be assessed and shared. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm going to pivot to a completely different category and one that I know we all absolutely love, right? And so one of our most popular um, submission categories are the peer-reviewed videos. There was this really wonderful series on teaching about ECMO that um, was widely viewed by our readers. Nathan, why do you think these videos were so well-received? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, like they, they, We have several thousand views of, of, of all of them. And I think, you know, I remember going being a fellow. Uh, ECMO was this sort of scary, complex uh, concept in very sick patients, right? So it stressed, stressed us out. Uh, the education materials, you know, sort of sketchy uh, uh, variable. So, you know, what I really liked here, um, the Janelle Bajalak, um, she developed three different videos. And what was nice, they're each good standalone teaching videos on ECMO. But, and, and you know, my bias is they were all improved after peer review, but they're really independent, but they also um, each builds on the other. And so, um, you know, she first did one, we published one on you know, the appropriate patient selection for, for ECMO, the circuit tour. Next, you know, how gas exchange, the membrane lung and the ventilator work with ECMO. And then, you know, flow pressure, hematology and emergencies, the, some of the uh, troubleshooting you need to do for patients on ECMO who develop complications. And so, and again, they were all done using excellent educational strategies, kind of best practices for teaching videos. So I think, um, you know, I, I love those sorts of videos. I know we all like to, to we, we, we review, uh, we look at the initial the submissions together and we were very excited for these and, and glad to see them published. And um, just more generally, I think we would love more video submissions again in, in, in 2022. It's clear that the, the modern learner uses video as part of how they learn. And, uh, you know, I've been uh, on this soapbox for a while, but I'm really glad that Scholar can provide excellent peer-reviewed content to fill the space rather than just somebody's YouTube channel. And I love that we have like great reviewers for these videos and the folks who've made the videos have been really partnering on incorporating peer review into videos, which I don't think is like a model that is used in a lot of places. So it feels not only great that the videos turn out better, but that that partnership can work. And I think has resulted in really great publications of the of the ECMO videos, but also the other videos that we have in our collection. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that sort of perspective of, oh, videos are really hard to re-edit and reshoot and, and do that. We sort of, we've, we've sort of have defied that and have given, you know, peer review feedback and, and the authors have embraced it and have really gone back and made those changes. So um, it's been a fun yeah. process to be part of. It's a, it's a great point. I think one of the things maybe we can uh, tell our listeners who may be thinking about submitting their video, what we've done that's different than our typical process, right, is we really try to make sure we give in one shot all the things you need to fix. Because we're not going, you know, I've, you know, we've all submitted papers where we get the first revision, do this, and then the second one, do this, and then, you know, and so forth. And it's, it's, it's on Word. It's, uh, you know, you're just on a, a doing it on a manuscript and making some typing edits and so forth. But this is much harder. We get that. And so we really try to work with the author, as you both have said, say, these are the things you need to do. And, 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 and the authors have been great, the ones we published to sort of really make these high quality videos and, and, and incorporate the edits. And again, I, I feel that process has made some really good videos that are, uh, that have been widely used, you know, for COVID, non-COVID, uh, but, but just uh, helping people. 
Well, uh, I wanted to start wrapping up now. We don't like to have a long podcast when we have, uh, three of us talk. Uh, Trish already disclosed her short attention span, so I, I'm not saying anything negative. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so first, I want to ask both of you. I'll start with you, Trish, I guess. So what are you looking forward to in 2022? You know, uh, about ATS scholars, since, of course, you were here on the Scholarly Podcast, but also life in general. Um, well, I'm looking forward to, you know, one of the joys of this job is reading the things that people submit, and I enjoy that very much. And then I enjoy working with our associate editors and our authors on crafting something that I think is even better after the peer review process pretty much every time. Um, I'm hoping that I'm going to ATS and seeing people in person. That would be super exciting. And then I'm hoping for a sense of calm and peace for all of us as maybe some of these waves are have less amplitude and maybe we come to a new steady state. Uh, it's hard to predict the future. Um, I think we all have learned that this past year. I feel like people are more tired now than they were a year ago, for sure. And so I'm hoping for calm and peace in so many different ways for, for myself, but really for everybody around me. Um, yeah, that's kind of where I am. Yeah, I think it's, it's hard to add much to that. I think uh, hope for calm and peace is um, something that I would echo um, as the same for in-person meetings. I miss actually seeing the three of you in person as well as my other friends and colleagues um, around the country. So I am also hoping that ATS will be in person. Um, and then for ATS Scholar, I, I love receiving these new and innovative um, pieces showing me what I could do to enhance the training with my own program and sort of help the careers of my fellows. Um, and I'm going to echo, I think, something we said on our podcast one year ago. Um, I'm super hopeful the how I teach category is going to come into publication this year. I'm going to remain on the optimistic side that this is the year that we're going to see pieces in this category. And I think people are going to love it. And then it's just going to be an inflow of uh, <laughs> articles for it. I love that optimism. I, I second it. Yeah. Yeah. I think. How about you, Nathan? Yeah. Oh, well, so I, I think, you know, first of all, just looking back and what I'm grateful for, certainly our, our entire ATS Scholar team, uh, especially the two of you, you've done so much for the journal. For, for me personally, it's been really nice. You know, we have our weekly meeting and it's uh, always actually pleasant and sort of uh, puts me in a better place as we're all dealing with such a crazy time. Uh, I think we're all on the same page. I really want to go to San Francisco for ATS 2022. You know, it's I can't believe it, right? We've not had the opportunity to meet in person since we launched the journal. There's so many editors, editorial board members, other reviewers who put so much work into getting ATS Scholar off the ground, even while leading the fight against COVID. And also see the amazing journal staff we Zoom with every week and, and see them in person and thank them. Um, the other thing is, you know, sometimes we get questions and, you know, having sort of um, the ability to interact with potential authors in different ATS groups who have interest in submitting papers and talking to them about what we look, hopefully they've already listened to this podcast, but uh, in general to, to sort of walk through that and give them feedback, encourage more submissions. And then the, the last part we're looking forward to specifically in 22 with Scholar is we really want to get more international papers. We're really interested in training 
uh, and education across, across pulmonary critical care and sleep across the world. And so we're going to put out a special call for international papers very shortly, and we're really excited to see what we get out of that, some of the, the interesting submissions. So, so really looking forward to that. Awesome. All right. Well, that is a wrap. I want to thank everyone for listening to today's podcast, as well as earlier episodes of Scholarly in 2021. If you want to be the first person to hear when the new Scholarly episodes are, are posted, please subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Then you search American Thoracic Society and you can find Scholarly. And of course, read ATS Scholar on the ATS Journal's website. On behalf of Trish, Christy, and the entire ATS Scholar team, we wish you a safe and happy 2022.